every year on this first Sunday of Lent, our gospel passage contains the story of Jesus' time in the wilderness. And by including this passage on this Sunday, our lectionary is inviting us to draw a comparison between Jesus' 40 days in the desert being tempted by Satan and our own 40 days of Lent. The most obvious comparisons have to do with struggle and solitude. In biblical times, the wilderness was a dangerous place, literally and metaphorically. The Greek term for wilderness is aremia, sometimes translated as desert, or more literally as lonely place or a solitude. Aremia is any wild, uncultivated land or indeed any place beyond the shaping or presence of humans. These wilderness areas posed all kinds of challenges, killer animals and dehydration, bandits, madmen, and spirits. And symbolically, the wilderness was the opposite of civilization. Wild and untamable, it stood in contrast to the ordered, precise life as set out in the law of Moses and in the cult of the temple. Knowing all this, and despite the obvious risks, Jesus goes into the wilderness at the Spirit's urging and faces these challenges head on. Likewise, we are called during this season of Lent to face our own struggles with similar resolve. This means embracing the discomfort and demand of Lenten fasts. It means straining to complete works of mercy and sacrificing time that we would normally spend on ourselves and giving it up to God. And perhaps most importantly, it means engaging in the self-examination and repentance that our Ash Wednesday service beckoned us to observe. It means being willing to look at those uncomfortable, shame-inducing parts of ourselves, to sit with them a long while, and to trust that if we sit with them and offer them up to God, we will find that God's grace touches even those parts of ourselves that we are least proud of. And this is, in my opinion, the harder, deeper work of Lent. It's easy, in a sense, to spin our wheels with fasts and prayer practices and service, so much so that we never actually slow down and allow the space, time, and discomfort for repentance to set in. This brings us to another key characteristic of the wilderness, its sparseness. The fact that the wilderness is a place where much of the stuff of life has been stripped away. Now, this can be threatening, but it also allows for a special clarity. God's voice often feels closer to the service in the bare wasteland. It is from the wilderness that we get the prophet Isaiah's call to prepare the way of the Lord. The wilderness is where Elijah encounters God as that still, small voice on the other side of the wind and the earthquake and the fire. It is in the wilderness that John the Baptist appears, proclaiming the baptism of repentance. Likewise, the challenges of Lent, the aesthetical changes to our services, the silences and sacrifices, these aren't just stylistic. They're also not just suffering for suffering's sake. They are there because the work of repentance requires that we slow down and see clearly. And to do that, we need to strip away sometimes bring things down to the studs, disrupt our normal habits and baseline busyness. We go to the wilderness so that we have space in our lives, that things open up so that our hearts may better hear God's call. 
I grew up downhill skiing, and for those of you who ski or who have tried to ski, you know that it involves a lot of coordination, and that there are dozens of things to think about in order to make your way safely down the slope. Using your edges, shifting your weight, bending your knees, maintaining balance, squaring your shoulders, knowing what in the world to do with your poles. But here's the thing: on one given run down the mountain, you can't possibly think about all of these things. If you try, your mind just becomes a cloud, and before you know it, your skis have crossed and you're flipping end over end. Instead, when our dad saw that we were struggling or he wanted to help us improve, he would give us one thing. Just one thing to think about. He'd say, "Okay, on this run, just think about your feet," or on this run, just think about your right leg. And more often than not, in focusing on that one thing, on having our attention narrowed in, letting the other stuff fade into the background, not only did I improve that one aspect of my form, but often I found the rest of my technique and posture almost unconsciously would fall into place. This is what the sparseness of the wilderness can provide. By tightening our focus, by stripping away the rest, we open up the space for God to enter into the wholeness of our life in an unconscious and unanticipated way—a way that we could never manufacture ourselves simply by trying harder. By doing less, we see more. There's one final element of the wilderness that's worth discussing. And it's somewhat particular to Mark's gospel. Something I think of as a paradoxical promise. Mark's gospel is known for its conciseness, and his telling of Jesus's time in the wilderness is on brand. It's all of two verses. We have none of the details that Matthew or Luke provide about specific temptations or Jesus's debates with Satan, but Mark does include an interesting detail. This line about Jesus being with the wild beasts. Now, commentators struggle to make heads or tails of this line. At first glance, it seems maybe to underscore the danger of the wilderness that Jesus had to contend not just with Satan but with animals who wanted to eat him. But some commentators interpret this line in a more positive light, seeing it as one continuous claw or thought. With the clause about the angels waiting on Jesus, and what they see is that in the wilderness, Jesus lived in harmony with creation and with God. In this way, Mark's temptation narrative is almost a reverse Garden of Eden. Like Adam and Eve, Jesus is placed in a natural environment. Like Adam and Eve, Jesus is tempted by Satan, though he does not succumb. This leads to, to Jesus living in harmony with creation, with the wild beasts, as Adam and Eve did originally, and the angels who, in Genesis, guard the entrance to Eden with flaming swords, thus preventing Adam and Eve from returning after their banishment. Instead, in our gospel, wait on Jesus and sustain him. Thus, Mark's depiction of the desert is a bit of a mixed metaphor, dangerous and threatening for sure. But hidden behind the temptation of the evil one and the fangs of the wild beasts is a deeper promise of peace, of reconciliation, of living in harmony with God and with all creation. And thus, too, it is for us these forty days. Behind the ashes and the fasting and the sparseness and the struggles is new life, 
a seed that is lying dormant just beneath the surface of that dry land. And with it comes a sense of peace. There's a special spiritual comfort that I feel in Lent that I never feel any other time of the liturgical year. And it comes like the wilderness promise in paradoxical fashion. How embracing restrictions and following fasts actually enigmatically fills me with a larger sense of freedom. How dedicating more of my day to silence and prayer and moments of reflection with God inexplicably makes me feel as if I have more time in my day, not less. How the more I prioritize the needs of others, the more filled up and satisfied I am with myself. In this way, the paradoxical promise of the wilderness also reminds us about what Lent is not. This is not self-improvement month. This is not New Year's resolution take two. We are not taking back control and manifesting a better life. Indeed, rather than taking control of our life, we're letting go. And that's because the paradoxical promise of new life, it's not ours to achieve, it's God's. And it's been accomplished. And the kingdom has already drawn very near. What we are doing in Lent is decreasing so he can increase, clearing our view so we can more clearly see this glory, confessing our sin and practicing repentance, not in order to achieve perfection, but to be reassured that we, though weak, are nonetheless justified. The question isn't whether or not this new life is arriving. The resurrection is coming no matter what we do. The question is whether or not we will join in, whether or not we will pick up our cross and go to Golgotha, whether or not during these 40 days of Lent we will follow Jesus into the wilderness. Amen. The Chapel of the Cross is an Episcopal church in the heart of Chapel Hill and the university community. Find out more at thechapelofthecross.org. There you can find our latest news and events, connect with our pastoral care team, Faith in Action Ministries, and offer a prayer request. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at the Chapel of the Cross, and on Facebook and Twitter at C-O-T-C Chapel Hill. May you be nourished by the word to serve in the world.